watching Open Source Craft. I'm really excited today. I'm Greg Pollack. This is Ben Solens, and I'm really excited that we're here today to talk. Um, ben is a data geek who helps the open source community by teaching how to make data meaningful. He's taught courses on Pluralsight and Linda on topics like Tableau, Hadoop, Hive, D3, and high charts. And I'm looking to speaking with him about open source data tools on the market, who has the best communities and why. And also because Ben taught me D3. It was his <laughs> Pluralsight course that I went through and learned the D3 graphing oh, library that lets you create beautiful charts out of data. So I'm really excited to hear your story. Thanks for coming. Great. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, man. Excited to be here. Yeah. So I think where we should start is um, with how your passion for data started um, early on in your career. Yeah. Yeah. So I was a geek from very early on. Um, you know, I was the 15-year-old kid making computers um, at my house, you know, instead of going out inside and stuff like that. And that led me to finding um, a job at a phone company back when we had home phones mm -hmm. uh, called MCI. And MCI, you know, was one of the biggest uh, telecommunications providers. They actually owned the UUNet, which was like a big part of the internet. Mm -hmm. um, and I got a job there actually initially as a telemarketer with doing sales, but then quickly, you know, found I wasn't great at that and became an intern at the help desk. And this was 97-ish, 98, something like that. Mm -hmm. So early days of uh, the internet, I guess, still. Um, and back then, uh, as uh, somebody in a role like that, you kind of had to do everything or a little bit of everything. Nowadays, I feel people are very specialized in certain things. Back then, it was like you just did everything, right? If you could fix a laptop and you could also write code or something. So. On the help desk there at MCI, I got to uh, see and touch and experience all different parts of what was definitely at the time a high-tech major corporation, mm -hmm. right? We had a mini data center in the back. I'd be changing tape drives, doing backups, and the other day fixing a broken phone or something. I, I touched and, and got to experience everything. And I found my passion helping the reporting team who was doing the local sales reports. So this was a call center. So imagine a Staples building. It actually is a Staples now. So a Staples-sized building with four-foot-tall cubicles. So it's just open. The okay. whole thing, you can see 1,200 people when it's at full capacity. Uh -huh. And in there, just people yelling and screaming about sales. And so there's like, you know, maybe 50 supervisors with pods and all this. And every day, they had to have reports about how their sales went. Okay. We had Unix terminals for the actual calling and like logging of a sale and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So it's very, compared to what we have nowadays, very, very old school. But at the time, this is like as good as it got. And we had a local team that did all the reports for them. I would help them out from time to time and then eventually found that to be my passion was working with the data, helping the actual sales team and the customer service teams just do their jobs better by giving them information. You know, that was mm -hmm. kind of the theme was with more information, they could do their job better, whether that's making sales or whether that's helping customers with, with problems. And so I found my way onto that team and I spent you know about four years there doing that. And back then the tools we had were, were pretty rudimentary. Um, you know, I, I, you know, we were talking and I tell you stories all the time about coming in at 6 a.m. before the supervisors, before anyone else got there, to print out you know, these 50 copies of these reports and staple them by hand initially until we figured out 
how to work with a printer and then staple them and hand them out on all the supervisor's desks every single day before they got in. To give them the data they needed to exactly. be more effective. Right, right. And so you found this passion for data and then what happened next? Well, I spent a number of years there evolving my skill set to try to always do that same thing, always give people more information to do their job better, whatever that may be. Mm-hmm. And the tools, like I said, were so rudimentary. I mean, we were doing VBA programming in Access, taking screenshots of VAX terminals, parsing the data in Excel to do real-time analytics on, are we gonna run out of people to call? Mm. And so it was really interesting because the tools were so rudimentary, but it actually forced you to be really creative. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, so I, I found a passion for it and I got really deep. I learned how to write, make web pages and do all kinds of different stuff around what now we would just consider like, you know, technology. Mm-hmm. And the deal was is that, you know, as companies do, the higher ups made some mistakes, huge mistakes at MCI. Uh, I think it was the biggest accounting scandal in history. They went into bankruptcy, came out of bankruptcy. And long story short, they were bought by Verizon and everybody was laid off. Oh my gosh. So 1,200 people, I mean, people where their whole generations of their family, right? Like like grandma, dad, and, and, and you know, uh, child all worked there, all worked at, at this place for 20 years. Oh my gosh. All because of, you know, counting scandal, this and that, whatever. Uh-huh. So me and everyone else get let go, get severance packages. They actually did it as nice as you could imagine. I mean, they had a job fair in the call center every day to try to find people new jobs. It was really like... <laughs> I mean, you don't see that nowadays, you know. Um, mm-hmm. That led me to do some consulting work and uh, actually start doing work where we had a new term for what we did called business intelligence. Mm-hmm. And this was right when SQL, or when Microsoft launched their SQL Server business intelligence platform. So I've been playing with that since it was in beta. And we had like a, a, a shape and a name. And there was this cool profession that we had now. Before, we were just geeks working with Excel and Access. So it was one of those things where it was like, oh man, this is awesome. Now we have some, now we have a path. There's a profession here mm-hmm. around data. So I bounced around in there, did a lot of consulting um, and contract work in Arizona, and then I moved to California. Mm-hmm. Uh, continued to do that, and then um, eventually that led me to Silicon Valley, as you know it does for a lot of people in California. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that that led me to kind of really advance my career in the data field when I started consulting at places like Facebook and Cisco and mm-hmm. you know Genentech and some of those other ones and all that. And then eventually you ended up at Mozilla. Then I landed at Mozilla, yeah. Which is a really interesting company. I still haven't figured out the role that they play in open source. Because I know that they, like Google, care a lot about furthering the web as a platform and teaching web as a platform. Back in the code school days, we implemented um, open badges where they were trying to create a standardized way to assign badges to stuff that you learned online. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, but that that's I might have been part of the Mozilla Foundation, right? Which is different than Mozilla, sort of. Like, yeah. I so can you explain? It, <laughs> yeah. So, so here's the short thing: Mozilla is the open source company. That's like their credo or whatever. Okay. There's the Mozilla Foundation which wholly owns and manages, the, um, the foundation wholly owns and manages the corporation. Okay, but wait, look, but wait. <laughs> Mozilla created Firefox. Correct. With so at water. some point, they were a for-profit company. Mm-mm. No. They were a foundation that uh, started a corporation. 
And the reason for that, my understanding from when I was there, was that a corporation can act differently than a, than a nonprofit yes. foundation can. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? So if I wanted to, say, buy software uh-huh. or buy a laptop or spend money on anything, yeah. as a nonprofit, all of the accounting of that is, I guess, much, much harder to do. And, I still want to... Go ahead, sorry. Yeah. And so the corporation was basically formed as a way to separate the operations that would then fuel the open source project that they were releasing. Firefox, of course, was the biggest one. It still is the biggest one. So I, did Firefox come before the Mozilla Foundation? No. What came um, first? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. So the, the, you know, the backpack story was these were the folks making Netscape Navigator at, uh, I think, AOL had bought mm-hmm. them. And Mitchell Baker, uh, who's chairman, whatever CEO she is, mm-hmm. um, and a few of her other folks, Brendan Ike is one of them, mm-hmm. um, those folks uh, weren't getting the love and support they needed at AOL for the Netscape project. So they released an open source version of their browser, which mm-hmm. later then became Firefox. Okay. Yeah, I think there was some rebranding that happened, but that was like the... Mm-hmm the the hatchling that happened right it was at AOL with that team mm-hmm. and eventually they left to start the Mozilla the Mozilla project I think they called it right and then that grew into the foundation and then the corporation the foundation to create the open source Firefox browser correct yeah yeah okay. Firefox was the main thing and then you know because there I think there were previous versions of it that weren't named Firefox mm-hmm. and then when they rebranded and, and actually launched it and you know remember they had tabs. Mm-hmm. That was the big thing. It was like, oh my God, there's multiple <laughs> windows open in one thing. Uh-huh. Uh, they just ate Internet Explorer's lunch, right? Okay. And just dominated the browser market. And then as yeah. how the Internet works, right? If you are a, say, fledgling search provider named Google uh-huh. and don't have many users yet, um, you can pay somebody to send you search traffic. Mm-hmm. And that somebody is Mozilla. Mm-hmm. So... Google was the default search engine in Firefox mm-hmm. because there was a contract between Fire- Mozilla and Google. And then that's how Mozilla made money, um, was from a contract with, with them and other search providers. That's still how they make money. Okay. And so you found yourself at Yeah. Mozilla. So I got sick of traveling, mm-hmm. basically. Bought a house, got married, all those kind of things. And was like, yeah, it's not good to be gone three weeks out of the month when you're trying to you know, have a good, healthy relationship. So... They were the only ones of all the companies I talked to, because uh, I had a lot of contacts at that point, that were fully supportive of me working 100% from home uh, here in San Diego and traveling back up there, I don't know, every every quarter or something like that. And what um, did they hire you to do? I was a data geek. That was my official title. Your official title is data geek. Data geek, um, yeah. What were you doing? So I was analyzing data initially for um, the Firefox engineering team about things like error rates, um, installs. Uh, Firefox or Mozilla is being an open source company, very, very uh, cognizant of privacy. And so calculating how many monthly users you have of your browser is very difficult uh, because we didn't track like a username, right? Mm. So this the math behind trying to come up with that and make that data accessible and make the data more visible in the company, I was doing all of that. Um, wow. 
And then just after I got there, the Firefox OS team started to launch Firefox OS, which is like a mobile operating system for phones mm -hmm. in all parts of, of the world. And so I worked real closely with them for, uh, for most of my time there, uh, building dashboards and helping them analyze how the launches are going and if there's any bugs or crashes or errors or just really help those engineering teams you know, understand better about what was going on and how their products were doing. And what open source tools were you using at the time? Uh, most of the data stuff behind the scenes. So we used uh, Hadoop for all of our uh, data storage, kind of our data warehouse, or now nowadays we call it a data lake or something. But mm -hmm. uh, that's where most of the data lived. That streamed in, mm -hmm. and then from there, uh, we we would use things like D3 to actually build data visualizations. We had a number of tools that we used. Uh, some teams were were averse to using something like Tableau, which is a proprietary software. Uh, so we would we would build dashboards and other tools that were open because they didn't want to use those for whatever reason, which I don't know. But anyways, we did a lot of analysis with uh, with Hadoop and Hive, um, and we did streaming. What did they use for streaming? I think Apache Storm or one of those. Um, but all the Apache stuff essentially is what what drives you know them as well as most high tech companies' uh, data operations. Okay, cool. So from Mozilla to teaching. Yeah. So yeah, in case you don't know, um, Ben has a bunch of courses on Pluralsight. You can check out his blog, bensolens.com, yep. where he's got listed on there his courses. He teaches all sorts of uh, data-focused tools on Pluralsight and now over on um, lynda.com. Mm -hmm. So how did you get from being a data geek to teaching and then making money teaching open source. Yeah. Well, one of the um, one of the consulting or contracts I had after MCI mm -hmm. was at a company called Thomson Learning. So Thomson you probably know Thomson Reuters. They mm -hmm. they own Reuters essentially. So I worked for them and and one of the companies that they owned was an online learning company. And I was always fascinated with teaching online. Mm -hmm. And I thought, "Hey, when I grow up, maybe I'll do that." Right? So you fast forward, I don't know, 10, 11 years later, and a friend of mine um, had a Pluralsight subscription and was using them to learn, you know, I think Java or something like that. Or, and he recommended, he said, hey, nobody's teaching data stuff on here and you're like the guy on that. So why don't you see if you could teach some stuff there? Mm -hmm. um, and I'd always, like I said, you know, I had this little seed that had been planted 10 years earlier about, wow, this is so cool to be able to share what you know and teach people in a way that's scalable like that. And, you know, that connected me with Pluralsight. And, you know, I mean, with Mozilla, I had, it was really interesting. If we were doing a launch, let's say like the Brazil launch for Firefox OS was huge. I was working 80 hours a week trying to analyze this data, see what's going on. And those times, it's like an insanely, you know, uh, stressful, tons <laughs> of hours, but then I'd go three weeks without hearing a peep from anybody to where I can just kind of work on other projects or develop some new skills, you know, learn a new programming language, whatever. And so I had this, it was just kind of like, almost like waves when you're surfing or something. It's like calm for an hour and you're like just sitting there and all of a sudden it's just like big waves coming. So in those calm times, I had a lot of free, free time to make content for Pluralsight. So that's how I started authoring and making courses on there. And I really enjoy doing it. I mean, I still enjoy doing it. I, I do what, it quite a bit. What drives you? What drives you to do it? You know, one of the things I love doing is the feedback I get from the folks 
Like, uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, with the D3 course, actually, um, I was at speaking at Startup San Diego here last year, and I was giving a talk about uh, Apache Kafka, which is another data platform that I, I'm in love with. And uh, I, was t I was trying to basically instill in people that were building startups, like, you want to set up your data infrastructure right from the beginning. And there's open source tools and a huge community and all kinds of support for you, so do it this way. And it'll save you, if you were successful and you have a giant company later, it will save you a ton of money and a ton of time and you'll be so much better off. And really, it's no different than doing it a different way. It's just you know knowing that it exists. So I was talking about that. And before I got up there to speak, um, this, this girl came up to me, I think her name was Jackie. And she just, she looked at me, she was like, Oh my God, that it, I just want to shake your hand because you taught me D3 and then that got me my job. And I'm just like, that's, you know, that's why you do it, right? Yeah. That's awesome. There's financial reasons and all that, but those are, are secondary. You know, it's How knowing that, that feel? it's great. It's like the best thing ever. It's knowing that, look, I mean, at, at this time in my life, I've been doing this for the data stuff specifically mm -hmm. for 20 years, almost, I think 18, 19 years now. And so I've been around the block a few times with all this data stuff, right? And to see that now, especially in the world, like data science is a real profession. And there's tons of people and kids wanna like do this from day one, they wanna be data people. For me, it's almost like, oh my God, like yes, I wanna help you. Uh -huh. You know, just because, I don't know, maybe that's just my nature, but to know that there's a way to do it that it works for me and for them, mm -hmm. that's like the, the beauty of the whole thing. Do you think part of that comes from you having to figure it out all on your own and so you want to <laughs> help people not have to run into all the issues you ran into? You know, that's why I started my blog. I started my blog in like, I don't know, 2006 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And mostly as a, as a consultant running around, I would run into problems that weren't, nobody had solved before, right? This is like before Stack Overflow and every problem was already solved. So I would just write down what I did to solve the problem so that if I ever ran into it again, Mm -hmm. I would do it and then, or I would know it and then other people would also do it. Mm -hmm. or, so that, that to me, that sharing of knowledge, I mean, that is part of the open source nature of how people make you know, open source projects and all that. That's why open source is such a successful way of operating. Mm -hmm. you know? Okay, and I have to ask, I have to go back. So if I'm creating a company and what is the best way for me to start collecting data <laughs> that you mentioned a second? I want to know now. Yeah. I, so I don't... So, so later on, I don't hate myself, I guess. <laughs> so, okay, so uh, Apache Kafka, or, or Kafka is a, a data streaming platform. Huh. And here, here's the notion, right? Uh, if you build a company, and you, it's a tech company, you're gonna have a number of systems that run the different parts of your, your site, your platform, whatever it is. Whether you have like something like Salesforce in the back end, mm -hmm. or you build your own CMS, and then you have a, a web platform where customers log in and do things like that. Mm -hmm. You have all these different places where data lives. Mm -hmm. And you will have conflicting versions of those, of those data, right? So I'll give you the, the most basic example. You, ha you have a website where a customer can log in and change their billing address. Okay. If they're an enterprise client, maybe you have Salesforce. Right. And a sales rep can log in and change their address. Now you have two versions of that customer's address. Mm -hmm. How do you know which one is right? Mm -hmm. You don't. Right. So Apache Kafka creates this abstraction. It creates a new place where data and the truth about that data lives. And it's basically this notion of a distributed log. And so a log is 
a, a series of events, a series of change events related to an entity, a, a data element, like mm -hmm. a customer address. And so if when you're setting up your, your company and all that, you know that you're gonna have all these different places where data can be modified and created Mm -hmm. And those all need to be in sync with each other. Otherwise, you could maybe send a bill to the wrong address, mm -hmm. right? Um, you can use something like Kafka, and there's others, but Kafka's the big one, really, where you basically centralize the access and modification and use of the data mm -hmm. so that everybody's on the same playing field. So it's like a, a central, just a central database. And right. you're saying, this is the authority over here. Correct. Your so, app is not the authority. You are a read copy. So is every other app, right? Mm. The the true the source of truth is lives in Kafka, and 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 the the awesomeness about that is like in the data warehousing world we've been trying to do this for years. That you that's actually the big um, challenge or problem with data warehousing is that if you have fifteen different places where customer data lives, mm -hmm. and you want to then give to you know a team that manages your customer information or your customer service a true picture of your customer base, you're gonna to have to pull from all 15 different locations and try to figure out which pieces are the right ones. Mm -hmm. and, and how do you know? Yeah. It's, it's too little too late. By the time you're actually trying to pull that data together and build a, build a, a source of truth, it's far too late. So but all the web services that I need to use need to integrate with Kafka. Yeah, and, and, and they all do. They all do. I mean, there's a library for almost every programming language you can think of. Oh, I see it, what you're saying. They use the API. Correct. Oh. Correct. So Kafka is a separate service running on a separate cluster. Now, you can still have, like, when you have an mm. app, you interact with your data locally. Mm -hmm. So if you want Mongo or Cassandra or mm. MySQL, whatever you care about, whatever you want to use is right for your app, you use that. But when you want to make a change to that customer record, you submit that change to Kafka. Right, and then all other apps, it's like a messaging service, if you're familiar with messaging services. Right, and so, so let's say, so I've got my local database, Yeah. and I've got the customer, and the customer's here, but then my sales team also uses Salesforce. Right. Okay, so if the customer logs in over here and changes their address, Right. Um, yeah, how does that get into Salesforce? It gets pulled into Kafka at right. some point. Mm -hmm. That's where it gets set. Probably my local thing, like uh, you log it in Mongo or whatever. Goes yeah. into Kafka. Yeah, and um, and then there has to be like another process. Correct. So there's another process that does an API call into Salesforce that says, mm -hmm. "Oh, look, it changed here. Fire off a note. And go update Salesforce. Go update Salesforce. Exactly. But I'm the one that probably has to implement that as a background process. Yeah, right, that APIs into all the services where Correct. else? All, so it's a little extra work. It is. It's not like Salesforce is automatically going to go in there. Right, right. But there are um, popular database platforms, and, and Kafka has this notion of connectors. Mm -hmm. So something like MySQL, anytime there's a change to a table, mm -hmm. you can automatically uh, listen for those changes and fire them off into the Kafka topic automatically. So there are uh, other like, like, like hooks. Yeah, exactly. Hooks into a lot of popular systems. Uh, Salesforce may or may not, I'm not sure. But mm -hmm. yeah, so you may have to um, do some of that stuff if you're using a bunch of third-party cloud-based systems that maybe you know, don't integrate with it automatically. Yeah, so th there could be some more work you have to do. Mm -hmm. but, but the benefit is you're never gonna email somebody at the wrong address, you're never gonna send an invoice. Like, like your business is gonna be so much smoother and better yeah. in the long run. I mean, you've been a part of a number of startups. I mean, you know, 
getting a true picture of how many customers you have, how many active users you have, every metric or everything you want to keep track of can be a challenge when you have a, a, a big federated ecosystem of products. Yeah, and I can imagine like the first place you probably run into that with a company is email. So it, is, it, they create an account and then you want to be able to email them. So what do you do? Their email needs to get somehow into your mailing list service right. that's over here. And so now you've got two copies of their information. Yeah. So what you would do is use Kafka so that it has like a, a, a truth database. And, that's, mm -hmm. and it's through there that their information gets updated to the email uh, service. Correct. Yep. Yeah, all changes go through Kafka. So, um, you know, if we had a whiteboard, we could draw it. But imagine without it, and this is how a lot of companies operate, you have a bunch of little boxes, and each yeah. box is a different app. Mm -hmm. And then, yes, the, 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 the service that, cre that captures email addresses and creates logins, yeah. that's a separate app, essentially. Mm -hmm. That has to talk to here, and it has to talk to here, and it has to talk to oh, here, yeah. right? And so each one of these boxes has all these little lines going around. It's like a big wired mess. Yeah. Well, instead, it all everything just goes to Kafka first, and then you have basically producers and consumers, right? So things that create changes or new elements, or and then things that read from those, yeah. right? That's great. That's really interesting. Um, so I wanted let's go from here to who do you feel is doing open source really well? Yeah, yeah. So I'm. I'm a bit biased because there's a lot of my friends, but I think if anybody Googles this and does the sees what I'm talking about, they'll they'll agree with me. Um, I'm going to say that the data team at Airbnb is I'm most impressed by with what they're doing in the open source space, specifically when they're talking about data. Um, they've released a number of tools in, geez, I don't even know, I want to say a year, two years at tops, that... Are, that were sorely missed by the data community, especially in the open source space. Mm, um, like it, so a good example is uh, AirPal, which is a way to query uh, Presto and, and Hive data and like, like a, a, a web query interface for big data, for data living in Hadoop specifically. Okay. Uh, and there's some other ones out there, but this one was just better. <laughs> and and, and I, I know that because I've used it. And I also know it because when I was at Facebook, we had an internal version of this tool called HiPal. So a lot of the folks that were working on the, that tool at Facebook left and are now at Airbnb. And they've basically taken a lot of the internal data tools that they had at Facebook and made them open source through Airbnb. So yeah, so AirPal is one. Airflow is another one, which is a way to... Like when we're connecting the dots between all those boxes, it's a way to do that, again, with a web UI that's, that um, is open source. So it's like an ETL tool, we would call it, right? Where you're moving data from one place to another, transforming the data and all that. And that's open source and free. Okay. So for people who aren't familiar, so Hadoop, that's big distributed database, big data, right? Yes. Tons of data. And the problem that you run into when you're... Have when you're running a Hadoop cluster and you're collecting tons of data, is that it becomes much harder to do what you might think as simple queries. Right. And so these are tools that allow you to do queries in a simple way again against big data. Correct. Yeah. Yep. As well as transform data, move it around, reshape it, do more of the engineering side of it. Mm -hmm. And then they have a new one um, that I've been playing with a little bit called Superset, which is. 
uh, a data visualization platform. So it does queries, it does dashboards, it does interactive analysis, it does all kinds of cool stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's all open source. You know, you can literally on your laptop just run a few commands, pull it down and fire it up. Um, and you could be building dashboards off of, you know, a big data system like Hadoop uh, in an afternoon, you know, all all open with a growing community and all that. So I think the Airbnb data team and the stuff they've they've been putting out there is, I mean, it's getting a lot of attention. Uh, obviously, they have the Airbnb name behind them, but these tools are just awesome. I mean, and it's it's really great to see. I mean, there's some other great communities like the Spark community is really big. Um, and I think the guys at Databricks and Spark are doing a great job too. But I would say overall, I mean, I'm, I'm the most impressed. And like I said, I'm biased, but if you go to Airbnb.io, mm -hmm. you can see this stuff and it's it's just great. I mean, I think anybody that's in this space would be would be pretty stoked on it. And I think you're gonna show us a little bit of uh, Presto at some point. Presto, yeah, so yeah, I have a demo. Yeah, if you're listening right now, um, you can tune in to our uh, show and tell. So at the end of this, if you're watching, it's gonna happen at the end of this. We've got um, Ben's laptop plugged in so we'll be able to take a look at Presto, take a look at some of these big data tools and how they're used. I'm excited about that. Yeah. Um, from there, I, I wanna read a, a quote about Ben um, from John Powers. Working with Ben taught me a lot about the value of data and overall business intelligence. At the company we worked on together, he transformed the organization by enabling data-based decisions. So is there any particular times you can think where you were able to influence a decision or direction of the company that you can share with us that really demonstrates the power of big data. Man, you know, um, I think the most impressive one uh, was, and I don't know if it shaped the trajectory of the company, but it certainly made a difference to some people's lives, um, was at Bridgepoint Education here in San Diego, uh, where I was the director of business intelligence and we were growing a team and really doing this data thing. Mm -hmm. um, and we were able to, we, we had a great team of data scientists and using, giving them data and structuring it in a way that was easy for them to analyze, we were able to create a prediction engine to see, to, to know after I think two weeks of online class, and this isn't like, uh, code school, plural Skype, on, online class. This is like college, right? It's an online university. After I think maybe two or three weeks, I forget exactly what the time was, we could know within about like a 90 plus percent confidence interval whether or not that person was going to graduate. Wow. After two or three weeks of a four-year degree, we could know whether or not they were going to make it. And we were extremely accurate. And and that that insight alone led to a lot of uh, organizational changes and instructional design changes and just, I mean, a cascading amount of things that were changed because uh, one, people need to graduate. Uh, two, uh, legislation was coming in for the for-profit online schools um, that was basically holding their feet to the fire that said you need, like people have to graduate here, mm -hmm. otherwise you're gonna lose your ability to get uh, Title IV funding, which was how they survived. So. The, that one thing right there was able to put in place a lot of changes that helped a lot of people graduate. Wow. You know, and I mean, so that was just looking at just performance online? So because it's an online environment where people are going to school, yeah. you can track everything they do. 
Okay. So you know when an assignment is yeah. scheduled to be turned in mm-hmm. versus when they actually turn it in. Mm-hmm. You can see the, the length and the number of posts in the discussion forums. Wow. You can see when they log in versus, you know, I mean, all these things that like in a physical environment would be harder to measure. Uh-huh. You can measure them there. And my team working with the data science team, who wasn't in my group at the time, working in, in tandem with them, we were able to collect all that data, structure it in a way, and give them the tools they needed to do the analysis to come out with this outcome. I mean, when you sit wow. down with academic folks who are used to working at universities, and you can tell them that within a couple of weeks, I can tell you whether or not this person is going to graduate, they, first off, they don't believe you. <laughs> I'm sure. And then second off, they're calling BS on the whole thing. So thankfully, when you have a data scientist that knows what they're talking about, they can explain it, you mm-hmm. know, in a way. But yeah, it's powerful stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. data is all around us. It shapes so much of our lives that we don't even know. Mm-hmm. Um, even small little changes or efficiencies you can gain can lead to just really dramatic, you know, changes in the world. So yeah. it's one of those one of those things that is kind of invisible, but very important. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, so you've taught courses both at Pluralsight and Linda, and I feel like one part that's one part of the open source community that's really important are the teachers, the people that want to take their time to learn open source and teach it effectively. And first off, you know, I think you're a very effective teacher. I really enjoyed learning from you. Um, Thank you. And um, maybe talk, I'd love to hear more about your experience of, you know, teaching for Pluralsight versus teaching for, and what is that, what is that experience like? I bet there's other people out there that are wondering, like, well, how does, how does that work? Probably just start with like, how does that work <laughs> to make money for each of these organizations? Yeah, yeah. So I think I need some water before. <laughs> oh, sure. Go for it. Pregnant pause. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, you mean the phys- like how does the money actually work? Like, you, so you, as a teacher, uh-huh. first of all, why would you want to teach for Pluralsight or Linda? Mm-hmm. And then do you, how do you get paid for it? Yeah, so I, like I mentioned, love teaching because I love the impact and I love mm-hmm. sharing what I've learned over these years uh, with folks that want to get into it and want to, you know, I want to save them time, right? I want them to take what I've the knowledge I have and as limited as that is and you know condense that so they can take that and absorb it and then take it to the next level right I want to see I want to you know five years from now see a course from somebody that took one of my courses that I am blown away by you know Mm -hmm. what I mean I want to see the the development in in the whole thing so I think giving back is important and that's why I do it Um, financially the way it works right is I make a course and I put a lot of time and money investing in the research and the content development and um, you know the, the recording of it and the editing and all those pieces um, to make something that is will help people. And, um, so you don't get paid up front at all? Uh, not up front. Well, you get, it depends. What, so with Pluralsight, you get paid up front uh, an amount. And then as people watch it, you continue to make money on that. So yeah, royalties based on uh, viewership, viewers. Yeah. So the more people view it for the yeah. number of minutes or whatnot. Yeah. You get. It's a funny calculation, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, it makes sense though because you know the way Pluralsight's set up, people can easily, you know, they need to watch ten minutes of your four-hour tutorial, so you get paid for the ten minutes that they watch it. Exactly. Yeah. You don't get paid for four hours if they only watch ten minutes, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's kind of the pie of like all viewership. 
-hmm. right? And there's like your amount of viewership, your percentage of that viewership, and then you get a royalty off of that, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and Linda is the same way, um, except you don't get a completion payment, you don't get an upfront, you, you get paid a royalty advance. So it's a much more typical mm -hmm. uh, book publishing type deal, right? If you want to do a book mm -hmm. for O'Reilly, they'll pay you five grand upfront or whatever, and then as book sales come in, you may end up making more than you know than that in the long term. Okay, so yeah, they give you like a thousand dollars upfront, and then they take that out of your first royalties. Exactly. And then you start getting paid after you've essentially made that money back. They've hit their break-even point, mm -hmm. then you start making royalties. And I assume that you can't just pick a topic and just work on a course and then submit it to them. <laughs> no, there's yeah, there's a lot that goes into the strategy and all that, right? I mean, uh, both companies uh, have teams that are do this, right? I mean, it doesn't just happen. Um, not like YouTube, where like I just make whatever I want and upload it, right? Mm -hmm. It's it, there's strategies that go into for them to figure out what's important, what people want to see, and their audience and all that, and they have data that helps support them in both both situations. And there's a bit of back and forth, right? So I'll, uh, like, like a, I'm going to record a Presto course coming up. And Presto was something they had no clue what it was. Mm -hmm. But because I'm in this industry and because I, I'm, you know, I'm into this stuff, I, I reached out to them and said, hey, this would be really cool. I think, I think people would like this, you know? Tell me no, fine. Like, like feel free to, 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 to shoot me down. But here are a bunch of ideas. And then, and then you know, they, they may say, hey, that one's interesting, let's do that one. Other times they may come to me and say, hey, I am dying for a course on Spark. Please, let's do a course on Spark. And I'll go, great, yeah, I worked with Spark a couple of years ago. I mean, and we'll figure it out and we'll, we'll make a course on it. So it's a back and forth. It's a relationship, I would say. And, and you know, both companies pretty similar in terms of strategizing on what it is. Mm -hmm. You know, some are more obvious, like I, I just got an email, Angular 4 is coming out or something. What happened to 3? Uh, what happened to 2? I don't know. Like, <laughs> I'm not a web developer, so I, you know, I'm a data guy, so I'm going, geez, it's already well beyond my, you know, my, mm -hmm. my, my level of knowledge. But yeah, so it's, it's a back and forth. And then one of the main differences between the two in terms of how you do it is with Pluralsight, I'm going to have to do all of the recording and editing and all and all that graphics and everything um, in my own studio. Uh, and then I'm gonna submit it to them and they review it and, and it'll go through the approval process. Whereas with Linda, um, I go up to their studio and they have whisper rooms and sound stages. And um, if you look at any of my, my stuff I recently did with them, I have actual live video uh, where it was, I mean, a legit like movie studio set up. Um, and, uh, and, and so you'll have live intros and outros, but I do all the recording and everything up there. Um, and then I, and then they do all the editing and graphics and mm. all that stuff. So as someone that's has five businesses and is trying to do everything, it's actually much more uh, efficient for me, um, to do it that way, mm. you know? Yeah. And so really, I feel like what's great about them, if I'm somebody who, loves to teach and I want to teach software, right? I could go and produce these videos, figure out how to produce them, do screencasts online, and I could put them up on my website. And I, or maybe I could go to, I think, uh, a service that allows me to sell them. I think like Vimeo has a paid version where you can get the paid videos and whatnot. Udemy or whatever. Like Udemy. Yeah. Well, but the thing is, like, there's this problem here, which is that you have to have an audience. Yes. So in order to be successful as a teacher um, and sell enough, 
you have to also have built up an audience. And that's kind of why Linda and Pluralsight are so good for teachers. Exactly. Because if you can figure out a topic that maybe they don't have, or you know, or just reach out to them and say, hey, this is what I do. I want to teach something about this. Let's start a dialogue. Yeah. They have people that will help you figure out what, they, what you can teach on. And then you don't have to worry so much about bringing and creating an audience. You can do what you love doing, which is teaching and building videos. And so I think, I think that's why more of those type of services are certainly needed. Yeah. So that it's almost like we have, we have the audience here. That, that's it. I mean, as an online content business, it's all about your audience, mm -hmm. right? And and if I had, you know, I mean, I get a decent amount of traffic to my website. I don't really do much on Twitter, but let's say I did. Let's say I had, you know, 500,000 followers on Twitter mm -hmm. and, and maybe, you know, a couple million views to my website every month. And people were finding me because they were searching for content related to, you know, Presto or data stuff. Mm -hmm. Yes, if I, I could make my own course and sell it on my website because I had that audience. Mm -hmm. and, and I would get 100% of the royalties, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but it's just, for mo that, that takes years and years and years to get there, you know? And if you have a passion and you want to get it out there, uh, yeah, these are just much better avenues for it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. So um, lastly, I want to talk about what you're doing now. So I noticed you've got this really, you've got over almost 10,000 subscribers on your YouTube channel? Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. I, I watched a video uh, that you created called What is Your Monthly Cost for a Tesla? where you compared your electric bill to your gas bill and found out the savings, used data to figure out what the savings <laughs> right. was. And I loved how you showed like how, even in a simple spreadsheet, how you calculated out. I find that often like figuring out the data is simpler than you think it is to just take the time to really calculate it as people don't realize that how easy to estimate pieces of it you might not have the exact number you might be missing a number but you fill yeah, it in along right, the way right um so teslanomics what is it <laughs> so it's it's my youtube channel where i decode the economics of tesla and that's the company, the industries that they're disrupting, and everything about it. In fact, I think while we're sitting here, their latest financial report came out. So as soon as we're done, I'm going to be digging into that, and then you know next week going to be talking about that. But the idea, um, yeah, it came from that video. Uh, that video, uh, like, I was trying to do, as we just were talking about, I was trying to share my knowledge around data and data science on my YouTube channel, just like I was doing at Pluralsight and Linda, but I was not successful, <laughs> right? Nobody really watched my videos. I didn't have any subscribers. It just wasn't a thing. And it's it's about finding the right avenue, right? YouTube, people are just not interested in that stuff there. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, yes, there are people that search for this and some people that are maybe good at it. Mm -hmm. But me and that topic weren't there. I made that video and it really took off. And it got me to thinking, um, well, first I should listen to my wife more because that's where that question came from. But second, that... Um, that using my skills and experience with data and how to present it and how to analyze it on a topic that is interesting and something I'm interested in, that did resonate with people. So that's the idea, right? Is that, I mean, if you go on YouTube and you look for Tesla stuff, you'll see uh, a bunch of like really sexy shots of different cars and drag racing <laughs> and, you know, all the, and girls on, you know, hanging out and show, it's like, 
that's cool. Fine. I, it's entertainment. Mm -hmm. I get it. I'm taking what I know about how to look at data and how to present data and how to make sense of it and applying it to a company that is really changing our world. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's since November, you know, that's when I started this. It's, so it's not even a couple months old. Uh, yeah, I went from eight. So in November, when I posted that video, I had 800 subscribers. I finished the year at 6,000 subscribers. Wow. I mean, so it was just like insane over just a month, you know, a month and a half. And then now, you know, February, middle of February, I'm up to 10,000 just about. So it's it's clearly, I found my niche on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I just love talking about that stuff and it's super cool. And, yeah. you know, I get to go, it's funny because I get called out a lot because I'm not a car guy. You know, <laughs> I, I, I say things wrong. Oh, uh, no. Yeah, like I, I called... Uh, you, you don't say pounds of torque, you say foot pounds of torque. Oh, obviously. Right, and foot pounds to me doesn't make any sense. I'm like, that like, sounds like you said something wrong, right? That's not how, and, and, and so I get called out on things like that or like the difference between kilowatts and kilowatt hours. So, you know, I'm fumbling through it, but I'm clearly a data guy <laughs> that's uh -huh. exploring this new world. And the whole idea is, um, you know, here you have a company that is innovating and changing things uh, like no other, right? I mean, I've always been fascinated, and, and I've told many people this, that technology is still very basic to me. Like like an iPad, you may look at it and think this is a revolutionary thing. It does all this crazy stuff, but it's also two-dimensional. It's also digital. I want an iPad where I can set my cup of coffee on it and it heats up my coffee. Why can't it do that? Now, who, who what other company out there is making stuff that that, that is like that fascinating and and not is just digital technology, uh -huh. which we've like mastered, <laughs> right? Of course, there's you know people all around us that are taking it to the next level. But I want physical stuff. I want technology to advance the physical real world just as much as it is the digital world. And I think Tesla's one of those companies. I mean, they're mm -hmm. launching rockets and landing them autonomously. Did you, I don't know if you saw that recent SpaceX I launch, did, but you're yeah. just going, this looks like CG, CGI, this isn't real, <laughs> right? So I am fascinated with that company, with what they're doing, especially with technology because it is so tangible and real. It's not just digital. Um, and so that's what, that's what I do on the channel. I look at the data, whatever data I can find about it, and I try to break that down um, and share that with people because I think it's a unique perspective. It's not something that you know, other channels and other people are talking about. Even if you go on Bloomberg and those guys, it's like, yeah, check out how fast it is. And it's all about appearances and, uh -huh. you know, because that's media, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so I guess we'd all start. Uh, if you check out the show notes for this episode, um, you can, I'll link uh, your YouTube channel so you can check that out. Sweet. Um, and um, I think we should probably wrap it up. Um, if you want to stay tuned, um, if you're, uh, we'll be looking through Presto, checking out your laptop so you can show us some big data tools. But uh, thank you for being on the show. Absolutely, man. Yeah. Yeah. And if, if you like this, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or you can go to our website at codepop.com to subscribe there or tweet us, follow us, like us on Facebook. Do all the of, things. All of those <laughs> things. Um, and thanks. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me.